Welcome back to Trojan Talk. As always, great to have you listening. We do this twice a week. We always enjoy all the support and the loyal listeners and enjoy the conversation we have each week, breaking down USC's game and then later in the week uh, previewing the next one and going a little off topic and having some fun, fun debate now and then. Today we are going to break down the 31-26 win over Arizona State. And by we, I mean myself, Ryan Young, and my co-host, Max Brown. You know him, the former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, and our Trojansports.com analyst this year. Max, how are you? I'm great, Ryan. Another, another week in the book. Season's coming to a close. Got to uh, finish strong. Yep, it is zooming by. And yet again, kind of like the Colorado game, USC gets a road win, which has been tough for this program last couple of years. And yet it's not one that the fans left feeling very satisfied about. Why is that? Well, this game had a lot of the hallmarks of this program from the last two years. The inability to sustain a strong start, back-breaking penalties, a potentially calamitous turnover, special team snafus, and, of course, more injury stuff. So it, it just, while it was a win, yes, it kind of also reinforced many of the reasons people are frustrated with this current regime and and the themes of this team the last two years. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, you have a different perspective as a former player. Would you come off this game just feeling good because you got the win, or do those other factors carry some merit? Yeah, no, I think the the hesitancy with fans to kind of really buy into this team is, is totally valid. I'm, I'm right there. I think you walk away from that game saying, phew, we, we, we kind of escaped against a backup quarterback. There's no reason that game should have been that close. There's no reason ASU should be – I won't say playing with SC because ASU still has some talent, but the fact that you score 28 quick and then only have a field goal left, like that should just never happen with this offense. And so I think the criticism is fair. I think you get away with the win, and it, it's nice for those seniors and stuff, but in terms of the long, long-term trajectory of the program, it's not where you want to be. And we'll probably get into kind of the ins and outs of why that happened, but I think big big picture, if you're a fan, you have every, every reason to uh, be kind of frustrated walking out of that game saying – we had everything in our going in our favor in terms of starting fast, playing a backup quarterback, defense doing some things. SC actually kind of got healthy before this game, so that ha- that was working in their favor. So to come out and play really like not the best three quarters of football to finish the game is uh, is not a bright spot. Yeah, so I did a podcast spot right after the game with someone who does a Pac-12 wide show every week, and and they they kind of teased the question to me by saying, you know, what a weird game that was. I said, well, I understand why you think it was weird. It wasn't that weird to me because I've seen this team yeah. do some version of this over and over again for two years. But but this was extreme. End of the first quarter, it's 28-7 USC. The yardage disparity. USC had 315 yards in the first quarter. Arizona State had one. One. There's no way yeah. that game should have ever been in jeopardy the rest of the way. Like you mentioned, Arizona State had to roll with – it's true freshman backup quarterback Joey Yellen, who was playing in place of Jaden Daniels, uh, who has a, a knee injury. He, it was his first extensive action of the season. That's another factor why you would think this game would definitely not be close after it was you know so so far separated early on. Let's let's start offensively, and I, I want your analysis here. What do you think changed so dramatically after the first quarter for the Trojans? Yeah, I think in every sense of the the term, like. 
took took your foot off the gas pedal. That's that's really what happened. I think you you talk about the first couple drives. They're marching right down the field. I mean, eleven plays, seventy five yards touchdown. Six plays, eighty two yards touchdown. Uh, six plays, seventy five yards touchdown. And then boom, three plays with the, the home run shot, ninety eight yards and a touchdown to start the game. Like that's just executing. That's everyone doing their job. But then from there, you take your foot off the gas pedal. I think in this game, the negative plays kind of hurt them. So, I mean, with the air raid offense, just, I mean, in any offense, but like just staying on schedule, getting positive yards, that's always the blueprint. I think in those later drives, we saw that not happen. We saw the run game really not pop that much. I mean, a, a couple runs here and there, but that not pop. But you pair kind of uh, a mentality of maybe saying, hey, we have this game in the bag paired with – turnovers we saw a little interception we saw a fumble which we haven't seen in a little while then we saw injuries with the Keaton's cramp and all that that wave in kind of the second third quarter and I guess bleed into the fourth I think all those kind of came together to, to really not work but X's and O's wise I mean they're they're, they're calling pretty much like this, the same mentality of plays I think one ASU settled in defensively a little bit and they had some some pass breakups which we haven't really seen a lot from SC. We haven't seen like true pass breakups. It's been either kind of a an interception, which is one side of the side of the event, or it's kind of been a sack, like throwaway kind of miscue on the SC offensive side. We haven't seen really like that many DBs making true plays in the ball. So that was kind of kind of the point. But I just think you you look through the game, and I mean every drive is so precious, and you have an ASU team that put together some drives late late or like towards the end of the game. And so that, that kind of shuts down SC's just sheer number of drives. And when you blink and have a couple punts or turnover on down, uh, interception and a, and a fumble, like boom, there's five, six drives. There's a whole quarter plus of football and SC kind of fell into that trap. And as the road team uh, lost momentum and w- w- like just wasn't able, to, wasn't able to, to keep control of this football game. Yeah, you, you mentioned a lot of factors there, but there's one I want to hone in on here. The, the whole notion of taking your foot off the gas who is the culprit in that is is that is that on the quarterback is that on the play calling is that a collective malaise that sets in when that happens in the game where do you point the finger yeah I think if you're pointing at one thing it's I mean it's never one thing I think I mean big picture it's it's a culture mentality right it's knowing that you're up 28-7 and having the awareness to say this game can go one of two ways. This game can be a game we hold on to or this game's a game where we blow the team out. And understanding that right there and then really kind of smelling the blood in the water and put your foot on the gas, that, that, that's the mentality. To me, a lot of it starts kind of, kind of up front, right? It's making sure you're dominating that when a run play calls that instead of it going for two yards and it puts your team behind the sticks, let's have it go for four and kind of stay on track. But there's that. And there's the turnovers thing, which – as an analyst, as a broadcaster, I always hate like saying turnovers because it feels like you can say that every single week and like right. you're never going to be wrong. Like, oh, it's a crucial factor. But once again, I mean, you talk about, I believe it was, it was, yeah, interception and then that, that fumble at kind of critical times in that game. The teams that really put other teams away, those, those turnovers don't happen. And so I think that was a key. And then, Obviously, I mean, the, the special teams factor of ASU always starting in favorable field position, that allowed a team that was rolling with their backup quarterback to not really be put in super adverse situations. So that's another factor. But it's not one factor. I don't think like the natural 
inclination as a fan might be, oh, what happened to the play call and all that stuff? I don't notice a huge difference there. I think it's just a matter of kind of executing. And, and, and to me, a lot of that starts up front of really kind of putting this game away with the big boys up front. I like your point, too, though, that it's about a culture, and it's just it has been consistent with this program. They, they just do not put games away these last couple of years, and it's one of many reasons why fans are just exasperated and, and fed up with this current status quo. There's so much I want to get into in this game. There's so many interesting uh, points and, and topics we're going to branch off on, but just starting with kind of the post-game reaction and Again, I mean, maybe this isn't fair, but I, I just I know fans get so frustrated after a game like that when they feel the head coach is just you know overly celebratory or or, or doesn't see the um, mitigating factors that easily could have derailed that and is just is reacting as if it's a bigger win than, than everyone else is perceiving it to be. What did you think of of Clay Helton's post game reaction? Yeah, no, I love the question. To me. I see it two sides. One, I can't blame fans for being upset. I'm right with you. But then two, like if you're Clay Helton, what are you gonna do? Like, right. and, and for right. fans that only saw the post game reaction, go go watch Clay's interview on the field right before the first snap. It is Clay's always positive, but that one is like over the top positive. Like, and, and not disgenuine. I ju- that that's who Clay is. But when you go watch that interview, Quinn Kesnick, the sideline reporter, says something about kind of the uncertainty bubbling in the air. And Helton's like first response is, like, we got a great opportunity, another chance for a Pac-12 game, still in the hunt, that kind of thing. And to me, it's a guy that, I mean, we can't blame him. Like, let's call it how it is. He knows his job is, like, on the line with each decision he makes, each quarter of football. Like, he never knows if his office is going to be kind of open that next day he shows up to work. So when that's your mentality, he's not going to buy into any negative headline. That's just not, like, if you're trying to save your job, that's not what you're going to do. He's going to say, what are the positives? So I can't blame Clay one bit for saying that. So I don't get on him. Like, I don't, I I don't, I don't, I I do not agree with the, like, the the, the stance of how can he be saying that? What the heck? Like, that kind of thing. No, you better believe Clay knows the deal. He's just trying to spin it, or not spin it, because I think he's being genuine, but at least say the positive side of things. So to me, I, I, if you're having a strong reaction to post-game comments, I would just say, I mean, what do you expect kind of thing? Yeah, I guess that's yeah. kind of where I net out of it. What would you make of it? Totally understand the position he's in, and his reflex has always been to emphasize the positives, and I think he does it for the sake of his team. It's not, It's not for the fans. It's not for... For himself, I, I just think he wants that positive message reinforced. Reinforced. So I, I, I know it frustrates people, but I also know where it's coming from. The reason why I went that direction, though, is I, I wanted to, to segue off it into a question that was asked to me on the on the Trojan Talk message board. Someone said, do you think that Clay is resigned to his fate? And I said, interesting question, because after the Oregon game, I really did feel that way. He was talking about having you know 10 great years in this program i've i've played and coached more ball than in this lifetime than whatever you know his comments seem like someone who was making peace with things then on thursday we get clay after the mike bone press conference announcement and he is just laying it on thick about how excited he is for Mike Bone <laughs> to come in and, and he's so proud of the university and they had this great conversation they had and all the support he feels. And then I started to think, maybe maybe he doesn't think this. Maybe he thinks that these next three games and now two games really will dictate his future. None of us truly know because we're not Mike Bone, 
or Carol Folt or anyone else that has a voice in that conversation. But as we've touched upon before, the consensus among almost everybody, hence consensus, is that uh, whatever decision is going to be made has is, is already been, been made, or at, at least the factors that will decide it are already in place. But I am now of the mindset that I think that he still thinks he's going to save his job if, if things go well here. Here, Yeah, I mean, here's what, I, what I'll say. I think, I mean, like we've said, Clay is an inherently positive guy. Like, he has, what, two more weeks of this season? Like, he, he, you better believe. I mean, he's a guy that's going to be wired to say, hey, let's ride it out and see what happens. Like, he's, he, he, he's hearing the same headlines, and he's been around football his entire life. He knows the deal. He knows he's got to win. He knows the pressures. He's not naive to kind of what's going on. So I think to him it's a, a big chunk of it is like, hey, sure, my job's one thing, but I, I genuinely think he probably cares for these senior guys. And so it's, hey, let's finish it strong for them. So when he is excited about an ASU win late in the year, he probably is not thinking about the 2020 Alabama game and kind of the trajectory of the program. No, he's probably thinking about right here, right now, yeah. kind of with all the crap behind me, how can I send a guy like Michael Pittman and a guy like John Houston out the best way? Well, the best way is getting a win versus ASU, however you can do that. So I think a lot of it is probably he knows the deal. He knows the circumstances at hand. And so in the short time with three weeks left, like let's just let's try to make the most of it. And that's just kind of how he's wired. Uh, yeah, in terms of anything more than that, like we'll see. I, I think, I mean, if he were to be let go, I think you better believe Clay Helton's heading straight for a long vacation with his family because he's seen a lot these past 10 years. But I don't think any of this is him being delusional or naive or kind of missing the boat. Nah, he has the factors at play. He knows those. He's going to say, all right, this is the hand I'm dealt. What's in the past is in the past. How do I move forward? And I think that's just kind of like how he's wired. And obviously fans think about terms and things in terms of the bigger picture on the national landscape. Clay Helton's probably worried about he, he doesn't have the ability or the luxury to do that because his job might not be, be there waiting for yeah. him tomorrow. So he's got to worry about the next, the next couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, again, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I don't begrudge any approach he's taking right now. There's plenty to criticize Clay Helton about for the, where this program's at and where, where the season's gone, what happened last season. But I'll say, I'll say, this, the, yeah. I'll say this one last thing. I, I did find it comical, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Mike Bones, like the way he signed off was like, yes. fight, on to vic- fight on to victory. Yep. And then yep. Clay says the same thing. Like, yep. tip of the hat to old Clay Helton, like uh, <laughs> a, a savvy vet move to, to al- align what you're saying to the old boss, man. We, in, in the post-game media room, all the reporters started like doing the side eye to each other. Like, did you hear that? Like, <laughs> it, was, it, it, was, it was it was so blatant. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't, I don't begrudge him. Listen, this, this is his livelihood, his career. I don't begrudge him. But I, that was kind of the reinforcing line to me, thinking that that he's still trying to to save this thing for for his sake. Because you never hear anyone say "fight on to victory." Just fight on, fight on. And and Mike Bone said it a couple <laughs> times in that press conference. And then Clay Helton goes. This team fought on the victory. That's our motto. And we're thinking, like, you've never said that, ever, (laughs) until now. Uh, What was the motto early in the year? It was like, so what, now what? That went went away real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I'm I'm not trying to beat up on on Clay. He's in a tough spot. I understand it. Well, uh, I'll keep my criticism focused on the 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 on-the-field stuff and the decisions and, and recruiting as USC lost a 2020 commit tight end Jack Erie on Sunday night and is now ranked 70th 
nationally and 11th in the Pac-12 in recruiting, so that's not good. You can definitely criticize that. But let's get to the stuff on the field. I want to have a nice conversation about Mr. Keaton Slovis. Keaton Slovis passed for 297 yards and four touchdowns in the first quarter. Those were not his game totals. That was the first quarter. ESPN initially tweeted out that it was the most passing yards by any college football quarterback in any quarter in at least 15 years. They later found one example of a guy who had one yard more. So it's it was the second most, as far as I could find, in the last 15 years for a quarterback passing yards in a quarter. He finishes with 432 passing yards, four touchdowns, one interception. Again, it, it was kind of a microcosm of his season you know we saw the highs and we saw the lows he had the one pick but he also had a pick six that would have been devastating that was uh, overturned by a penalty away away from the ball so it, it was an up and down performance but as I've been saying all along this is what you should expect from a true freshman quarterback I wrote the whole column about it on Sunday I know we talked about it on the last podcast so I won't get into that whole narrative again but there was a lot to like from that performance again that first quarter was amazing. It was incredible. The 95-yard touchdown, I'm around St. Brown, all of it. Max, what was your overall evaluation of Keaton Slovis on Saturday? Yeah, I thought your headline, I saw that column, was perfect. How'd you – I'm blanking on exactly yeah, how you word it. I, I, it was I, like, I, I, yeah. I said, I said uh, appreciate the special moments and accept the, the freshman moments. Yep, exactly. I think that's the perfect recap. I think – I mean, you talk about a kid, <laughs> SC's walking into a road stadium and they're relying upon it. And we've said this all year. It's nothing new, especially if you listen to this podcast, but they're relying upon a true freshman quarterback to be the focal point of their offense. It's not like they have a run game to really rely on. And that's probably a different segment we'll get into. But when you talk about a kid who can roll out there and, and they, they dominate that first quarter, uh, they dominate that first quarter and, and he's rolling. I mean, some of those throws he's making are big time throws and his ability just to recognize it in the first place is impressive, especially that Amon Ra uh, 95 yard touchdown. But then when you kind of bleed into the game, it gets into that, that story I was kind of, kind of talking about. You kind of let off your gas in the, your foot off the gas in the second quarter. You have the turnover on downs, and then you have the fumble by uh, by Keaton Christian, and then you punt, and then like you punt a couple times, and then like that's kind of the end of the first half. Then he has the cramps in the third quarter, and in the fourth quarter, all of a sudden it's a game with the defense that has some juice, and that's kind of like the five second story of how the game went. So I'm impressed with him. It's been the same thing all year. It's you love the foundation he has as a true freshman quarterback. He's seeing things, he's recognizing things, he's pulling the trigger, he's trusting himself. But then it's that ug- that that uh, that ugly true freshman mistake that kind of rears its head. It's only a couple throws a game. This is this is literally going to be the blueprint for Ke- uh, for Keaton Slovis in the offseason. We've seen it versus BYU. We saw it last week. Saw it against ASU. It's rock solid, rock solid, doing what you need to do, potential catastrophic mistake. And that's kind of held true throughout this this uh, this year. And I think it gets back to how this competition rolled out and everything we heard from that was that at the end of the day, JT Daniels was just the more consistent guy in the fact that he didn't have the catastrophic yeah. mistake. And we've seen that uh, throughout the course of the year. Well, so I, I, if you haven't read that column, it's up on Trojansports.com. Do check it out. I, I really just wanted to, to put – Keaton Slovis in perspective because you know fans have been jumping on and off the bandwagon all season and I just I just think that just roll with it this is what you're going to get and be excited about the potential he shows but I started that column by focusing on the 95 yard touchdown pass to St. Brown 
I'm sure every, every USC fan has seen it multiple times now. But St. Brown was almost flanked by three defenders, except he had just just enough of a step ahead of them that with a perfect pass that would allow him to keep his stride right over those defenders, there was a play to be had. I don't know if, what the percentage on that throw is all the time. I, I was so impressed that Keaton not only had the confidence saw it let's do it let's go boom and then just a perfect throw on the money on a line someone on the message board said i'm not sure that ball was ever more than eight yards off the ground the whole way it's just a missile max as, as a quarterback put this in perspective for us how, how tough is that throw and, and what did it show you about keaton yeah you're talking about on your own five yard line your quarterback gives you a, a, a legit pass concept it's not like it was necessarily just kind of a one guy fade route that give him a chance if not then we'll just punt and kind of move on no he gave him a full pass concept so in your head as a quarterback you're saying i gotta get the ball out can't hang into the can't hang on to the ball can't be taking a safety and uh i talked about it in the, the last question i mean his ability to recognize things is impressive he got a cover two look and if you're a quarterback where do, where do you beat cover two it's down the middle you try to split the safeties he did a good job with his eyes i did think it was a uh, pedestrian play by the safeties like you got to have some awareness of where the receivers are but hey that's football that's that's a quarterback making make defensive backs pay but yeah cover two you got Amon Ra right down the middle he throws it on time like you said on a line you can't put air under that ball because then it gets picked but I just thought great throw great recognition and then the ability the mindset to know that I'm basically standing in my own end zone throwing a ball down the middle of the field like bang bang play if something goes south like that's a big big time mistake but he has the confidence in himself to kind of pull that trigger and I think you could we can get back to saying hey like he has great foundation but then makes a catastrophic mistake but the next factor that is how does he rebound and I think we've seen all year that he doesn't hesitate after a mistake and he's out there just like pulling the trigger which I thought was super impressive impressive but big time throw big time catch Love the play call. I mean, anyone that's not high on Graham Harrell or whatever, like the fact that he has the confidence in his true freshman to call a normal pass play out of his own end zone, that's not a given. A lot of play callers would say, hey, let's – Let's trust our defense to do that kind of route. Nah, he, he, he let it loose and give that whole offense credit. Now the counter to that is, or the, the next step is, why didn't we do that all game? Sure, but right then and there, it was a good, uh, great execution, great call. Yeah, if, if I had to, to summarize why I'm so high on Keaton Slovis for the future, it, it's really three things. A, it's just that, that raw arm talent is obvious. I think everyone can agree on that at least. Two, it's that confidence. He's just a confident player. He plays confident. He takes I'm not going to say chances all the time, but he's not afraid to, to let it go. And three is that resilience that, that you mentioned. And it can be within the game. It can be game to game. I mean, remember, that Oregon loss was 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 rough for him. And it was a huge moment in their yep. season. He didn't play great. He comes out the very next time he's on the field and, and lights it up in the first quarter for four touchdowns and nearly 300 yards passing. So those three things are what really excite me about him moving forward. I'd also say his toughness. I mean, he's taken a lot of hits this year. Seems to play through a lot. Uh, had the cramps, obviously missed a quarter with that. As Clay Helton said, he, he got three bags of fluid in, in the tent from the training room, wherever it was, and, and was determined to get back out there. So I, I think he's shown us a lot, and this last game was another example. Cool, cool stat that I stumbled upon while working on that column was that he now has two 400-yard passing games within the last three weeks, which is – more than Sam Darnold had in his two seasons as a starter and as many as Cody Kessler had in his three seasons as a starter. Now again, that's wow. that's just cherry picking one stat. I'm not I'm not ready to debate 
Keaton versus Sam or had that discussion. That's not what I'm doing here. But it shows you that he's doing stuff that has not been done very often here, and that too is another reason why you should be excited about him. To me, the biggest thing that stat shows is just how reliant upon the, how reliant this offense is upon sure. his production. Yeah, like the weight right. they're putting on his shoulders each time they come into the game is because obviously, I mean, if Sam was in this offense, if Cody was in this offense, they would put up crazy numbers as well. Definitely. But I just think it's a good reminder of fans of saying, "Wait a sec." The byproduct of us not running the ball that much is our yards are going to come through the air, and it means that. Once again, a guy we were not expecting to play this year is having to lead these boys. No, it's an impre- just one stat, stat like you said, but impressive nonetheless. Yeah, that's a great point you made. I should have made it beforehand to kind of qualify that. That's, it's definitely a byproduct of this offense and what they're asking of him. But then the other side of that is you got to go do it, and, and he's doing it. I want to touch on one more point offensively before we uh, switch sides of the field. One of the biggest plays in the game and maybe it gets uh, lost in the shuffle of all the long touchdowns and, and, and bigger plays, was Drake London's catch to set up the last field goal, which gave a very important cushion there down the stretch. Matt Fink was in the game at that point, throws it into a pretty tight coverage along the right sideline. I think most of us in the press box, as it's unfolding, are thinking, oh, this is going to be picked off. And Drake just rips it away from the defensive back and gets them the yards they needed to get in the field goal range. You know, back before the season when we were all you know, assessing Drake London's potential and you know talking about how cool it is that he's a two-sport guy with basketball, it always got tossed out that, well, his, you know, his uh, basketball skills help him on the football field. And... You know, I'm sure it did, does in some way, but I didn't really know. I, I couldn't quite see the full application of it. Well, I think on that play you saw it. That was a guy ripping a rebound away from a defender in front of him, and it was very much a basketball-like move. What have you thought of his development and progression this season, just from kind of getting thrown out there early on, that Stanford game, having some bumps, but has really become a pretty key cog down the stretch here? Yeah, I like how you use the word progression because you talk about, like, when we – jump back to August and kind of where we were at with things like Drake London was getting getting some buzz but I know for me like I fully intended that fourth receiver to be Valus Jones or Josh Follow I've mentioned that a couple times in the podcast yeah. and obviously it hasn't worked out for those two guys but that's where my head was at in August and I think some of the I mean <laughs> a name from the past but uh, Devin Williams was also kind of get, getting some pub especially as like a bigger receiver and then you look how, at some, how, how we forget so quickly yeah, yes Devin Williams yeah yeah exactly and then you talk about even guys in Drake London's class I think Muneer McLean was a guy that was like hey he might be the surprise of the class and then you talk about Brew McCoy and Kyle Ford yep. so like you literally like you there's a legitimate argument that he was like fourth to to come to, to to be mentioned not only in this unit but also the entire uh, his 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 receiving class which is kind of kind of crazy when you think about it but yeah progression I think it's, it's been cool to kind of see how I mean you talk about the two slots Drake London and Amon Ra St Brown I've said this before but how they play off each other Amon Ra perfect example is that ninety five yard touchdown he's more of the speedster the guy that's going to kind of take the top off and then kind of use his quickness on some of the intermediate routes and then Drake's the exact opposite more of the tight end body and I'm sure. He probably hates hearing us say that because it means that, oh, he might be like slow or whatever. But no, it's not right. It's not that. It's just the fact he's using his body and he's able to kind of use all those uh, basketball superlatives or whatever you want to use. So I think the combination has been great. And uh, I think Keaton Slovis, I mean, <laughs> you talk about where we were after BYU and the joke was that, hey, anytime we throw to Drake London, it gets picked to now he's kind of like the yes. 
the, 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 the safety blanket. I mean, that progression in its own has been awesome. But, no, happy for him. I think anytime a guy has the basketball label on him, it's always kind of like, well, we'll see if it pans out. Or maybe that's just me, but that's kind of how I was, of just kind of like, well, like y- you never know. And maybe that's what basketball fans are saying about a football player, but I was kind of saying it as a, hey, basketball player on the football field kind of thing. But, no, he's awesome. And I think looking ahead, you talk about Brew McCoy, you talk about Kyle Ford, you talk about J.J. the third, you talk about Manier McClain, if he can get healthy. I mean, that class is absolutely lethal. And J- Drake London, he's a big part of that. Well, here's an important point that I haven't heard anybody make in recent weeks or, or early this season. When I sat down with Drake London and his family back in end of May, just to really dig deep into this whole two-sport pursuit and and how it, how he decided that he could manage that and, and why it was important to him, I didn't realize before that conversation that that he he knows or he fully plans to choose one of the sports eventually, like in college. He's not planning to play both sports every year of college and I was surprised that he and his family were so candid about that because uh, I think it's going to be hard to top that, football that, that, then damn right I, I think everyone just assumed though that, that he was just going to be a two-sport guy as long as he was at USC and that might not be the case it, it could be after this year it could be two years from now he basically said I just need more time to figure out what my best sport for the future is and whenever he feels he, he has that answer then he'll probably put his full focus into that because he wants to play professionally in either sport, not both in either. He wants to at some point say, okay, this is the sport where I have, I have the best long-term potential as a pro. I'm going to put all my energy and time into it. And he was it him or his coaches made the point to me that Drake doesn't know how good he could be in either sport yet because he's, he's never been full-time. He's always been juggling the two. So no one knows what he can actually be if he's a year-round football player or a year-round basketball player. And I say all this because it's relevant. I think it was important for the football staff to get him involved this year and to show him his potential and his future in this program and not have him be an afterthought in this offense. And then he goes to basketball season, and maybe that goes better, and all of a sudden he's thinking – I, this is probably just my path is basketball now. I, I don't know for sure that that was the motivation of the coaches, but it would be smart if it was to consider because I'm sure they want him in this program for as long as he's at USC. And for that to happen, he has to see his potential on the field. And, and he's, he's seeing it. And it will be a tough decision whenever it comes. We, we don't know yet what he's going to even be able to do with, with this basketball team this year. Obviously, he didn't go through preseason practice. He hasn't been with the team. Uh, I mean, he, he goes to the games, sits you know on the bench there, but he's not active. And so we'll see what he does the rest of this season and where things stand. But I think it was smart for USC football to really make him a focal point as they have. Yeah, no, it reminds me of Zach Banner, who was just a class above me. I mean, he came into SC, big football, basketball guy. Obviously going to be really hard to do that long-term, being a right tackle or offensive tackle that he was. Goes through his first year, redshirts at SC, didn't really have a ton of football success early on, so then kept the basketball deal alive. And then after, I think, that first year, he knew, hey, I got to be football time just for body purposes. A little easier to do both as probably a receiver, but I, th- I think – Long term, I mean, Zach Banner is getting play time with the Pittsburgh Steelers right now. That worked out for him, and maybe uh, Drake London has uh, similar uh, progression. Yep. So, well, that was a lot of offensive talk. Let's get to the rest of the field. I do have some other points I want to cover. And first, I just want to get your take on the defense, your analysis of USC's defensive performance Saturday against Arizona State, where they held the Sun Devils to 47 rushing yards. And 
339 yards overall. What did you think of, of what you saw? Drake Jackson was back. Talano Hufunga was back. EA did not play. He, he was not able to play. But overall, what did you think of the defensive performance? I thought it was solid. Um, I did not think it was great. I thought going into that game, it was kind of goofy because I was on the pregame show and we were kind of going through our keys to the game. Then I said my keys to the game. It was like big plays. And then like 20 seconds after we got word that Jaden Daniels was not yeah. playing. And so I was like, well, my key there would have been get after this quarterback or, or, or however you – whatever – the professional term for that is but uh yeah I think going up against a backup quarterback I was expecting this defensive line to have a field day I was expecting this kid to struggle in the past game a little bit even though he was highly ranked the reports I had heard coming into that game or coming into this offseason was that yes they had a QB competition but there was a decent gap between Jaden Daniels and the backup so like I was not expecting a ton from Joey Yellen. I was actually impressed with kind of what he brought to the table. But, yeah, I thought they picked on the corners at times. I know Frank Darby and uh, Brandon Ayuk, they're good players. Yeah. They're good athletes. They're not Nikhil Harry. They're not Jalen Strong, but they're still they're still good. They, they got after him in man coverage, and that's kind of been what Clancy's been able to get away with, right? He's able to bring pressure. Then there's corners uh, – Corners on the outside kind of hold their own. We saw them get beat at times. So that to me is a little concerning. But at the end of the day, I thought considering that they were being put in bad field position the whole game, which is not insignificant. It's a different mindset having a team start on the 20 or versus start on the 45 or start on the 25 versus the 40 or whatever it is. Yep. That puts the defense in a tough mindset. But by and large, thought it was solid. But that is not necessarily championship level defense. I'm with you. I'm with you. The minute we found out that Yellen was playing and, and we knew that he hadn't really played at all this season, I expected them to have even more success against him. He passed for 292 yards. And let's just call it what it is. This game easily could have gone a different direction down the stretch there. They had a receiver drop a pass with a ton of room to run on that, on that final drive. That could have got them down close to the goal line. This, this could have easily been a loss. That, that, that was some good fortune there. Yellen so. missed a few throws. Like they, I, I think Joey Yellen's looking at that film today, saying, "Man, I missed some yards on that. T- on uh, I put I left some yards out on the field." Yeah, and we've spent a lot of time this year praising the young cornerbacks. Well, I think the last two weeks they've they've had some rough patches. Isaac Taylor Stewart gets burned for a long touchdown early on. So, so that group has had some struggles the last two weeks, and you would have expected maybe a, a stronger performance from them given the, the matchup and the circumstances. Yeah, no doubt. I also think it's kind of – you talk about progression and whatnot. Uh, John Houston, leading tackler on the team. I mean, say what you want about him as a, as a middle linebacker. I'm not of the camp that he's the worst thing ever. That's just that, – that to me is just not true. I, I'm, I don't think he's Cam Smith. I won't go that far or some of these other big-time SC linebackers. But I feel like he's had a good, good past month. I think uh, with all the injuries and all the things that have kind of kind of been slowing these guys up. I think John Houston's kind of been the one, one, one consistent in the middle. Yeah, that was that was your hot take in one of our hot take segments a few weeks ago. That's right. I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> yep, you uh, you picked him for likely MVP of the defense. We'll uh, we'll definitely revisit that after these final games and and give our uh, our season awards out, so to speak. But one other point on the defense, a big play was J. Tufeli's roughing the passer penalty late in the game on a play that that went for a pick to uh, Hufanga 
and could have been game-changing and really taken some of the suspense out of uh, that final stretch there. That interception gets negated because Tufeli gets called for the roughing the passer. He was kind of already in his launch point by the time the ball came out, but I think what he said, the explanation he got was that it was because he followed through and landed on Yellen, and that was the cause of the penalty. A lot of fans were were pretty upset by that and thought it was controversial. What was your take in the moment uh, on that call? In the moment, I thought it was a terrible call. I, I, I did not agree with it. I mean, it was a big hit, but I don't think it was malicious. I, don't, I, I won't go that far. And I'm glad he got that explanation because timing-wise, I thought he was totally fine. So then if it's the pile drive thing, okay, that's, that's to me where you're splitting hairs a little bit. But I, I'm clear with it. I yeah. just think it was a missed call. I think, I think it was a bad call. Um, to me, I think a big part of the, the ref's job is to not make game change, not make the ref should not be the reason a team wins or loses. And if SC loses right. that game, you can point to that call as the reason SC lost. So to me, yeah, I, I just, I don't like the call. I think in that regard, it's been gone too far. And, and to kind of give you perspective, I actually did not have a huge problem with Isaiah Polamalu's call. To me, that's just the new wave of football. That That's just, that that is the new nature of, I mean, 10 years ago, we we all got, we would all get fired up on Sean Taylor and Ed Reed hits. Well, that was right, ten football right. 10 years ago. This year, th- like now in 2019, that just you just can't do that. And if at the time, guy, if, if guys get ejected as a result, that's just the new wave of football. And so when you compare the two calls, because both have been controversial in back-to-back weeks, that's kind of where I net out with both. Yeah, so, I mean, we, you can pick that one and say that shouldn't have been a penalty, but nonetheless, USC finishes with 11 penalties for 93 yards. So even if you take that one out, you're looking at 10 for 78. It just remains a very glaring problem for this team. We got into it uh, at length previously, so we won't do that conversation again. But, yes, uh, Clay Helton's efforts to clean up the, quote, discipline of the game have really not panned out this season. Another point of contention for fans has been special teams and John Baxter. And we had the talk last week about should USC have kicked off with 20 seconds left in the first half against Oregon on the one where they returned to the 100 yards for a touchdown. Baxter was asked about that after practice last week. He was very defensive and very dug in on, well, this is why we do that. And he gave a whole elaborate explanation that if you if you go back through the tape you won't ever see a squib kick not every kicker is good at that it's harder than you think we're not good at it we don't do it this is what we we believe in our guys and our coverage units but what happens saturday they come out and they're squibbing all the field yeah it was a it was a total turnaround from a few days ago when baxter pretty much indicated that he had no interest in ever doing that and then all of a sudden they're they're doing it like crazy saturday so that whole unit has been has been very rough in recent weeks and I definitely understand the fans frustration yeah yeah no here I I would be willing to put money on I bet it was all week Clay says hey we trust our guys we trust our guys as he should I mean whatever like you're not going to second guess decisions and then early on in the game they have that near kickoff return and I bet he said screw this I'll take the heat in the media for having bad special teams we're not going to lose the game because of a kickoff return and just squib it so I I don't think Baxter was I know, I know you. This is not what you said, but I, uh, I don't think Baxter was like lying or trying to deceive us or anything like that. I think that's genuinely sure. what he thought. As you were intro- introing that, part of me was thinking I need to go back and look at the kickoff return uh, or the kickoff unit because I'm sitting here thinking and saying we've had a lot of injuries. So does that mean some like less starters are 
on yeah. those yeah. units? And, and I don't yeah. know the answer to that. I'm just kind of spitballing here. What does that mean? And then on the second token, who are your prime kickoff guys that usually dominate that position? It's linebackers. It's interior linebackers that are physical or fast and get downhill. Well, what does SC not have a ton of? Interior linebackers, outside got outside linebackers that, mm-hmm. that can run. They keep they yep. keep the nickel spot on the field just about the whole game. So that's one less linebacker position you have. Then we know we're thin at the interior linebacker position. Hence the fact that why can I can I Malga had such a elevated role. And so when you don't have those bodies to put there, who else are you putting there? And is it receivers? Is it who else is it? Is it? And to me that that that's kind of my point is if it is a defensive back, and I'll have to go back and report back in the Thursday podcast kind of what I find. But if you're going with DBs and whatnot, those are less physical guys. If you're going with receivers, those are guys that don't have experience tackling. And sure, they all go through the drills. Sure, it's still no excuse. But just kind of going as you outlined that, those two factors of overall overall depth and injuries on the team paired with lack of interior linebacker depth at large could be impacting this kick, the, the quality of this kickoff uh, kickoff unit. And, and Baxter made that point last week. Kanai Malga was one of their main special teams stalwarts until he got pressed into a bigger role. We've seen Kyle Ford got his first action on that kickoff unit the last two games. And also, obviously, caught the touchdown pass. He's mostly been a special teams guy. He hadn't played it all season. All of a sudden, he's out there. So I, I get that. I, I give credence to that, that that's been a setback for them, and that's caused adjustments, and it's probably hurt the unit overall. But in the national rankings, they rank – near the bottom in terms of yards given up per kickoff and at a certain point the bottom line is the bottom line it just hasn't been a great unit yeah and one last point i'll make too is uh ryan excuse me ryan before you uh before you got to sc one of my former teammates when baxter was my special teams coach was soma vanuku he was literally pac-12 special teams player of the year as a kickoff cover guy which is unheard of i don't know if anyone else had ever done that but we're talking a fullback 270 pounds running a four five and he would go down there and absolutely kill kids um like it it was it was crazy but that was (laughs) that was baxter's piece like he we i i would be willing to bet this would be a fun fun thing to go back and look on i would not be surprised if we had one of the best kickoff units under baxter in like 2014 or whenever that was 14 or 15 because of soma and then all the pieces that flew off of that they don't have a Soma, and not that – I mean, Somas don't grow on trees. Like, that was very abnormal, but that was something that was lethal back then that they that – just, just personnel-wise, SC doesn't have. And, yeah, that's kind of where, uh, where we find ourselves uh, squibbing kicks 24-7 now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. Let me ask you this. I, I know you only have the perspective of playing in two programs, USC and Pitt, but everyone that makes a lot about how much time USC in practice – gives to Baxter and the special teams units. What, was it significantly more than what, what Pitt did when you were there, or did it stand out to you in that way that, man, it, we're really spending a lot of time on this? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I've played under two guys that were like special teams gurus. So okay. <laughs> uh, John Baxter sure. at SC and then Pitt, uh, he was our running back coach. I'm blanking on his name, but he's like, well, he's one of the highest paid special teams coaches. Like he's uh, – He's super well versed in, in that, and so that, that's kind of his baby. Like they at Pitt, we took pride in it as well. 
they did the whole or we did the whole uh, Aussie punter recruiting too, like go down to Australia, one of the, that whole deal. Yeah. So not the best thing, but I will say, I mean, we had Johnny Nansen there uh, when Sark was the coach. He was our special teams coach. And I mean, Johnny, as everyone's seen on the sideline now, is a high energy guy, good guy, love him as a coach, but we did not nearly spend as much time on special teams because, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think a lot of special teams is want to. It's just a matter of getting guys up for that position. It's a matter of treating that play just like it's the play on fourth and goal kind of thing. It's an effort thing. It's a want to. It's a lock-in mentality. And I thought Nansen in that regard did a, did a good job skill-wise and technique. There's a reason Baxter was sought out. I think that's kind of his area of specialties. Um, but it's obviously not working out this year. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point I wanted to make in all that is that, yes, they've been losing bodies and they've had to change personnel, but it's not like they don't practice it a ton. So they're getting plenty of work with whoever's in there now. Those guys have gotten plenty of work and practice on it. Anyways, not to belabor that point any further, I want to close and get your take on an important game this week that is not USC Cal. It is Utah and UCLA. And obviously Clay Helton and the Trojans and, and maybe a bunch of fans, I'm not, not sure where everyone comes down on it, are really hoping that the Utes get tripped up somewhere along the line here and that, that the Pac-12 hopes are still alive. They seem so faint now, but it is crazy time of year. Things happen. Both teams, I think, had a bye last week. Both were off. UCLA is playing better now. They've won three straight games. They beat Stanford, ASU, and Cal. Do you think there's a scenario, a chance, for the Bruins to upset the Utes this weekend? Is there a chance? Yeah, there, there definitely is. I mean, once again, you talk progression. Like, Think back where UCLA was in September. People were calling for Chip Kelly's head. This team yeah. is the worst Pac-12 team we've seen. Or like All those narratives, like... This, that, and the other. I remember hosting a Sirius XM deal where we had uh, one of their beat writers on. He's like, this is as bad as I've ever seen it. So, I mean, give Chip Kelly credit for, I mean, they're four and five now. They're fighting for bowl eligibility. That's crazy with where they were at in September, just cut some of the losses they had. So hats off to them. They're way better. But I, th- I think, yeah, there's, there definitely is a chance. I mean, DTR, he, he's doing some things. I, I still don't think he's taking the big step like we would have hoped, but he's doing some things. And then Joshua Kelly, he's now be, he's kind of positioned himself as uh, one of the best backs in the country. I heard, it was the first time I heard one, some analysts say it was Eno Benjamin's one of the top three running backs in the conference with Zach Moss, Eno Benjamin, and Joshua Kelly. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that, that verbiage. So, I mean, that, that's a big, big get for, for UCLA to kind of bump him up into that category. So they have some pieces, but to me, I literally just got off Salt Lake Radio uh, like half hour ago, and you're talking about a Utah team that style points are going to matter for them in the big in, in their big yeah. scheme goals in their college football playoff goals. So I know I know Whittingham's probably not preaching it just because coaches don't talk about style points, but you better believe those players are saying we need to beat UCLA and we need to beat UCLA with a statement. And what is their statement? UCLA, or I mean uh, Utah, they can stop the run with those guys up front, and so. I think UCLA is going to have a tough time, but I feel way more confident in UCLA's chances now than I did about six, seven weeks ago. It'll be interesting to watch. How wild would that be if, if somehow they pull out upset off and all of a sudden USC is back in the driver's seat for a Pac-12 <laughs> South title after after all this? And if that happens, we'll come back and give Clay credit for his, his comment. Everyone's writing us off. Don't write us off yet. We'll see. <laughs> that would be crazy. We'll that would be crazy. 
can't can't cut them out yet. And shoot, who does uh, Utah has? UCLA. Then they have Arizona. Maybe Arizona wakes up, and then Colorado if Montez wakes up. So three games that Utah should no doubt absolutely take care of business. But it's Pac-12. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Well, hey, that was fun. Another great podcast. Again, we thank everyone who is a loyal listener and and joins us each week here to, to break down these games and preview the next ones. Be back on Friday with the preview podcast for Cal and probably another round of USC football hot takes because we just enjoy doing those. Max, as always, right. appreciate it. Love me some hot takes. All right, Ryan, see you Thursday. <laughs> okay.